0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about calls for peace uh, as it concerns the Ukraine war from the United Nations General Assembly, also going to be uh, having an update on developments in Guinea, West Africa. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace. Medea, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, nice to be on with you. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. And, Medea. of course, we've recently been seeing the United Nations General Assembly take place in New York with different world leaders uh, uh, giving their view and the perspective of their governments and their people on a number of uh, pressing and very relevant uh, uh, geopolitical issues. Uh, And, of course, the war in Ukraine, uh, one of the main topics that we heard about with uh, many of the leaders condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine and things like this, which I believe is to be expected. But one thing that we haven't heard, I think, quite as much about, at least here in the United States, is that leaders from about 66 countries um, also were calling for diplomacy in the war to uh, in Ukraine, you know, to basically uh, conclude the conflict through a peaceful negotiations, you know, per the U.N. Charter. And so I'm wondering what you. Uh, sort of make of that? I mean, you published a piece about this, uh, co-wrote it with uh, Nicholas J. Davies, a piece entitled "End War in Ukraine, says 66 Nations at UN General Assembly. And what do you think this reflects about what the real international community feels about uh, this conflict?
1: The real international community, meaning the majority of people represented by the governments that spoke out at the UN, are saying, enough. This is affecting us all over the world. Uh, you you all have to sit down and figure out a way to end this crisis. And we published that piece, but we also, on the Code Pink website, published excerpts from the 66 different speakers. We went through every single speech at the UN, and we pulled out excerpts uh, showing— a, a, they, some would take it from one angle or another angle, uh, but in the end— Uh, They were all saying that the only way to end this crisis is going to be at the negotiating table. Uh, If you prolong it, it's only going to mean more people dying in Ukraine, but it's also going to mean more hardship for our people around the world. So we want you to do something about it now.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I was uh, struck by, you know, the words of uh, Congolese foreign minister Jean-Claude Gokoso. And I want to actually read a little bit of what he said, because I think it speaks to how urgently uh, a lot of um, world leaders feel about the situation. He said, quote, because of the considerable risk of a nuclear disaster for the entire planet, not only those involved in this conflict, but also those foreign powers who could influence events by calming them down should all temper their zeal. They must stop fanning the flames and they must turn their backs on this type of vanity of the powerful, which has so far closed the door to dialogue. Now I wish to be direct and directly address my dear Russian and Ukrainian friends. Too much blood has been spilled. The sacred blood of your sweet children. It's time to stop this mass destruction. It's time to stop this war. The entire world is watching you. It's time to fight for life the same way that you courageously and selflessly fought together against the Nazis during World War Two, in particular in Leningrad, Stalingrad, Kursk and Berlin. Think about the youth of your two countries. Think about the fate of your future generations. The time has come to fight for peace, to fight for them. Please give peace a real chance today before it is too late for us all. I humbly ask this of you and see, you know, that was uh, pretty. Pretty impassioned, pretty heartfelt, I thought. And what it speaks to, Medea, is an issue that I don't think a lot of people in the U.S. are necessarily clear on. And that's the fact that, you know, an open conflict between the U.S. and Russia to nuclear armed nations um, could have catastrophic impacts on humanity itself. And so the issue of uh, the war in Ukraine is not simply about Russia and Ukraine, nor is it uh, just about the U.S. and Russia. I mean, it's literally about the uh, uh, the whole of humankind, and that's not an exaggeration given the uh, uh, weaponry that we're talking about. And so, I mean, from the standpoint of a U.S. peace movement and a U.S. anti-war movement, and particularly as someone who has been you know, doing this kind of organizing for a long time, Adia, I mean, why do you think— the issue of peace as it pertains to this conflict um, doesn't seem like it's been a priority of the u s government for its part uh, in this conflict, and I think that that's you know also true of a number of other wars and conflicts we could point to. but I mean, what do you think is the motivator there?
1: Oh well, um, we have seen how the u s through different administrations, both democratic and republican, have been getting more and more involved in Ukraine uh, since the overthrow of the government there in 2014. And while they did promise Ukraine membership in NATO back in 2008, but it hadn't happened yet, they did really make Ukraine a de facto member of NATO by supplying it with so many weapons starting in 2015, by training each year 10,000 Ukrainian NATO forces, by incorporating NATO into Uh, military exercises. And so really, uh, uh, Ukraine became a very close ally of the United States and the West. And this was part of the U.S. uh, gamble to move Ukraine uh, solidly into the uh, Western European faction and to divide it from uh, Russia. And I think uh, we have seen this through various administrations, um, but coming to a head now uh, with the Biden administration that has even said through the uh, Secretary of Defense that its goal now was to weaken Russia. So the U.S. has been in this for quite some time uh, and now making it clear that Uh, It wants to remove Russia as an important power so that it can focus on China. So I think it's really um, uh, unfortunate that the American people are not getting the truth about this, because otherwise we'd be out on the streets saying, stop this immediately. Uh, We don't want a war machine that could take us to nuclear annihilation, and we don't want to be spending Now it will be with this new uh, latest tranche of money, $67 billion, uh, more than the entire military budget of Russia on this uh, war in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, I think that's the case. You know, I think another aspect of this media that is um, obscured from the consciousness of the American people is the material impact um, that it has on us here. Although I think in a a way, I think people are are, uh, starting to sort of see about uh, and really, I believe just this week, um, the Biden administration sent another billion dollars um, in aid to Ukraine, uh, following up on the the tens of billions that have been um, happening there already. And I feel like people in the United States are seeing how there's all this money for war, not just in Ukraine, but also around the world. Uh, meanwhile, our uh, material conditions here in the U.S. are worsening also. And so then this this. uh this 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 shallow sort of narrative uh that has been put forth about the war in Ukraine and this you know out and out information war that has sort of evolved out of it as well i mean it seems i'm uh, pretty purposeful like it's being done on purpose right in the sense that If uh, uh, the average American was aware of the implications of all of this, then they would, in fact, be in the streets. And so I feel like it shows the um, the the utility of propaganda in order to make this conflict seem like it's somehow to the benefit of the American people, that they're being protected by the U.S. being involved in this way, when in reality, it may literally be taking money out of their pockets and food out of off of their table. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. And I think that um, if you look at that from the worldview, that was another issue that was coming up in these speeches at the UN. In fact, there was one uh, president from a small island country who said the U.S. and the global community had promised that there was going to be $100 billion in a fund to address the climate. And this was promised a decade ago, and we still haven't seen it. And yet, in less than a year, uh, that same community has put that much money into this war in Ukraine. Why are we putting more money into destruction than into solving the existential threat of the climate, which is what he said? Uh, And I think, yeah, if the American people had a a media that was more— uh, informative, they would understand that what we're seeing in these hurricanes uh, in domestically and what we're seeing overseas, like the flooding of one-third of Pakistan, I mean, these are thousands of people just in, in Pakistan that got killed uh, from that flooding. Uh, isn't this more of an issue that deserves our attention than a war, a proxy war with Russia? But as you say, the media is putting it in this, in this uh, uh, context that this is somehow in the interest of the American people to defeat Russia. On the other hand, there was a poll that just came out today from the Quincy Institute that showed that the majority of people do want negotiations. And we have to say that that's despite the fact that the mainstream media keeps saying Russia will not negotiate, Putin won't negotiate. Uh, So even the American people are saying we have to find a way out of this war.
0: Definitely. And because of that um, sort of propaganda issue amongst people of the United States, uh, Medea, I mean, I feel like that that sort of highlights the importance of sort of a real uh, uh, anti-war uh, movement here in the U.S., a kind of more robust, uh, built up built up and strengthened um, uh, anti-war movement, particularly since, <clears throat> um, you know, not only the uh, uh, war in Ukraine, but so many uh, wars and conflicts around the world. world are either. Sort of actively facilitated and uh, directly or indirectly supported by the U.S. And so it seems then that since we know that we can't uh, count on the mainstream media, you know, the corporate media platforms, or um, even those government leaders to really give um, sort of the real picture of of what's happening here, then uh, the movement then has to sort of, I think, uh, uh, go about its organizing in a way to really, you know, push the these points and to make the reality clear. And I feel like the movement itself is uh, going to be an important tool in that way, since the other information, the other narratives are, you know, incessant. There's uh, uh, definitely easier access there. And of course, we also know that there's an issue of censorship where, you know, any voice or any narrative that goes against the Washington consensus is, you know, marginalized, if not squashed outright. You know what I mean? And so what do you see as as the role of the movement in a period like this as uh, 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 we continue to sort of build this fight for peace?
1: Well, absolutely essential, and what we have to do is really build a movement because we don't have much of an anti-war movement left in the United States. Uh, I just wrote a book on the war in Ukraine that is coming out next week, and I'm starting a, a book tour because I think it's so necessary to go around the country and start Uh, shaking folks up and saying, come on, you have to get out, you have to do something, Um, that this is uh, not uh, a period in history where you can sit back, uh, even if you're a Democrat, and assume that some political party is going to do something good for you. You know, there are some individuals within the Republican Party who have spoken out. Uh, Even Trump came out in a tweet yesterday saying that he wanted to see negotiations Uh, But we can't expect that Republicans or Democrats um, uh, who are more interested in politics uh, are going to really be our saviors in this, um, except they hold the purse strings and they decide the policies. So we really have to start getting serious about uh, getting people to make demands on our government. And uh, I'm very concerned that we don't have the kind of movement that's up to this right now. You talked about the media being such an impediment, and it certainly is. But even within the progressive media, uh, your show and others excluded, uh, we have to call on them to not just focus on domestic politics, especially during this election time, but to really give attention to the international politics, to the war in Ukraine, uh, and and help us to be spreading the truth that this war is only going to increase uh, the uh, inflation in the United States, a global recession, increase the price of oil, increase the use of uh, dirty, fracked gas, uh, increase the use of coal, that no matter where you look at this from, except if you're in the uh, business of producing weapons, uh, this is not going to be good for us.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that's the case. And I was you could tell us more um, about your uh, book and, you know, what we can expect there.
1: Well, the book is um, really a, a primer, a kind of one-on-one. How did we get to this point? Um, what was the role of the U.S. Uh, in not only the expansion of NATO, but in the um, 2014 coup and beyond? Uh, what have been the consequences of the sanctions? Um, the uh, story of the, the press and how it's played into this from different angles. Um, the possibilities of negotiations that were thwarted both before the invasion and after the invasion, where other countries come down on this, where other leaders, and uh, what we have to do. Uh, So it really is trying to remove the fog of war and misinformation that the American people have been fed uh, to understand that, yes, this was an illegal uh, invasion that should never have happened. We don't condone the invasion at all. Um, We set the context for it, but really at this point, uh, we try to point people in the directions of what happened to the Minsk Accord that was agreed upon that would have been uh, a way to settle the issue of the Donbass region, uh, what would neutrality for Ukraine really look like, um, and how do we get ourselves out of this spiral of violence uh, that, as we've been saying in this show could lead us to a nuclear catastrophe. In fact, we have a whole chapter on uh, the nuclear issues, uh, the um, nuclear weapons that the U.S. has based in five countries uh, in Europe, um, the accords that had been signed between Russia and the United States that have been either expired uh, or have been violated, uh, and of course, uh, calling on and, and um, uh, and lifting up the nuclear ban treaty in the U.N. Uh, that is the ultimate way to resolve this issue by getting rid of nuclear weapons.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Medea, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we are move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and watch DC. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. And today we're talking about developments inside Guinea, West Africa. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Milton Alamadi, chief editor of Black Star News, the producer and host of the Black Star News show on WBAI in New York and author of Manufacturing Hate, how Africa was demonized in Western media. Milton, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Absolutely. And Milton, uh, this week, uh, Guinea, of course, a country in West Africa, opened a trial 13 years after a massacre and mass rape that took place in uh, a stadium with the military leaving at least 157 protesters dead. And uh, this was happening uh, under the leadership of a former coup figure, uh, Musa Dadis Kamara. And uh, this also uh, uh, came... uh, Day, the trial uh, that is came after a day after Kamara and five more defendants were detained in Conquery, the capital city. And so I was hoping you could help us understand just what was the context of this massacre? What was happening in in Guinea at that time that led up to this horrific uh, event? And what should we understand uh, about how this trial has been moving forward so far?
2: Okay, very good. Well, first of all, I think it would help to. Uh, know a little bit about Guinea's history. For many years, Guinea uh, had been ruled by Ahmed Sekuture, who ruled the country from 1958 to 1984, about 26 years. He was a contemporary of uh, Kwame Nkrumah, of course, and he was a socialist. In fact, he had been a union leader before he became the first leader of Guinea after independence. So he was uh, there until he died, actually, in 1984. And then one of the leading generals seized power after his death, General Lanzana Conte. And in turn, he ruled in the same tradition of Secuture from 1984 until he himself died in 2008. So that's 24 years. So all these years, the people of Guinea had been yearning for a normal process where you elect the leader and the leader stays for two terms. There have been conversation for many years about having a normal process. They're looking at neighboring countries like Ghana. Ghana had in- instituted um, democratic elections. You know, Ghana, as we speak today, has had seven successful peaceful transfers of power now. So after Kante uh, died in 2008, that's when Dadis Kamara seized power, Musa Dadis Kamara. And Guineans are now thinking, oh, no, we're not going to have another situation where a military man steps in and rules for another 24 years or so. So there was immediate de- agitation, calling for civilian con- control, return to civilian government with regular elections in countries um, that they're seeing in the region, in, uh, in Ghana, for example. So the conversation started between 2008 and 2009, but when it seemed like it wasn't heading in the right direction, activists, pro-democracy activists, human rights activists, women's uh, groups activists gathered at the stadium uh, 28 September 2009 pushing this agitation to restore civilian rule. And, you know, Kamara and his colleagues in the military just went completely crazy. They just went nuts. They sent presidential guard soldiers, they sent the police, they sent other elements of the armed forces, and they sealed all the exits to that stadium. And then the shooting started. People were shot. People were bayoneted. People were hacked with machetes. People were stabbed. Women were raped right there in the stadium. It was just horrific. And subsequently, the United Nations Commission came out with this report saying at least 154 people were killed. I don't even know the numbers that were wounded. Because after that massacre, hundreds of others were detained and in detention. Some more died in detention and many others were tortured in detention. But the momentum towards civilian rule could not be deterred, even with that horrific massacre. And in fact, that killing created a split within the army itself, because obviously many of them, I'm sure, even had relatives who might have been harmed. So there was an attempted assassination of Kamara himself. He was shot at the head. He somehow survived. But then he went into uh, exile to Burkina Faso. And in 2010, Guinea did hold elections, and Alpha Conti was elected president. Now, Alpha Condi, I think he was probably afraid of how the army might react. So even though there was calls for a trial of the people that were responsible for the massacre, he really didn't do anything until he himself was overthrown in 2021 by a coup led by Colonel Mamadi Dumbaye. And now Dumbaye himself is under a lot of pressure. When are you going to restore civilian rule? So now he's come up with this accelerated pace to have this trial take place. And of course it's very popular because the victims want accountability. They want the people that were responsible for the massacre to be tried and punished. And they also want compensation Many of them never got the remains of their relatives, so they want an investigation into that to see if remains can still be recovered. So that is where we stand today uh, in Guinea. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Kamara did return from exile, I think it was last week, and he was promptly detained. And now Kamara and 10 of his senior colleagues, uh, the trial began
0: on Wednesday. Yeah, I appreciate you breaking down that context, Milton. But, and I have to wonder, how is it that um, Kamara was even able to come back into the country uh, after, uh, you know, everything that happened?
2: Well, there are a number of things. I can, um, I can um, guess that perhaps the uh, government in Burkina Faso said, listen, um, you have to go. So maybe he went back not willingly, even though he says he came back willingly because he wants to Uh, clear his name, it's going to be very difficult because of the chain of command in the military and when you are the commander-in-chief and you take over power, all the action subsequently, um, you know, the buck stops with you, essentially. You know, when you took over power uh, in Guinea, you seize power militarily, everything that happens subsequent to that action, uh, you are going to be held responsible. So it's likely that he, even though he's saying he came back willingly, it may not been willingly at all. So that's a possibility as well.
0: Yeah, and this also makes me wonder, I mean, um, what is the political situation like, you know, inside Guinea today? Is it uh, somehow uh, more stable from uh, the period of Kamara and some of his... Okay, that's um, a very yeah. good question.
2: It is relatively stable because the current government under... Um, uh, Colonel Mamadi Dumbaya, has banned uh, political protests. In fact, a number of people have been killed uh, that tried uh, peaceful protests. He's banned the alliance of the several activist organizations that have been very instrumental in successfully pushing uh, for the election that happened in 2010 and pushing Kamara out. So it's a very superficial uh, sort of con. I believe that if he prolongs his own government beyond another year, uh, we might see uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, serious action. The people of um, of Guinea are very politically conscious, very relatively very well-educated, very good in political activism. So I don't think uh, if if, uh, Dumbaya uh, thinks that he can uh, uh, extend his uh, regime uh, uh, beyond the promises that he made when he came in. He said he was, uh, uh, actually, when he came in, there was a rationale because the President, uh, Conte, uh, uh, had uh, completed his second term in 2020, but then he changed the Constitution, which was a very unpopular move, to allow himself to extend this rule, and he ran again, and they said he rigged that election, and that is why he was serving a third term. So when he was overthrown, People actually came out and celebrated on the streets because they saw that this is a guy who was once revered as a, a very committed activist, a human rights activist, a pro-democracy uh, activist, was turning into a dictator after two terms in power. So when Dumbaya came and seized power, it was a popular coup. But Dumbaya has failed to set a timeline by when Guinea uh, would return to civilian rule. So that's why it is an undercurrent um, of resistance. So I think many people are actually reading this uh, trial, the trial of Kamara and his colleagues, as, of course, it's something that people of Guinea want, but they also believe that Dumbaya is using this to buy uh, popular support uh, and uh, to allow him to extend his uh, government uh, longer than it should be in place.
0: Yeah, and what are some of the most pressing issues sort of facing uh, Guinea right now, to where that kind of maneuvering is even uh, considered necessary?
2: Well, you know, part of the problem is uh, it's not. I don't see it as a an, an, an issue that we can only uh, isolate to Guinea. Sure, I, I think it's uh, because it's not by accident that last year we saw uh, uh, you know a, a couple of uh, in, in fact, Burkina Faso we saw a coup, we saw. Uh, Another coup in Mali, uh, after uh, Mali had began to transition eight months uh, earlier away from it, we saw in Chad, uh, when the long-serving president was uh, killed, Iqris Debi, there was a coup, and his son, Mohammed Debi, came into being. Most of these countries have have weak political uh, institutions, and that is part of the problem. So it's very tempting for officers to uh, seize power. And, you know, we can actually trace it back and say, why did this tradition uh, become um, uh, uh, pervasive uh, in Africa? We can point back all the way to Congo. Congo uh, under Patrice Lumumba. Uh, That's a time when most African countries were just winning their formal independence. And there was an opportunity to create A new Africa, but what happened? The United States, Belgium, and Britain supported that first coup. Uh, I shouldn't even say supported; engineered that first coup uh, because simply because Patrice Lumumba was a nationalist, being advised by Kwame Nkrumah, and they were talking African unity. They were talking taking control of Africa's resources. But that coup then set a pattern for the rest of Africa. There was a proliferation of coups after that, when the army realized that these governments are vulnerable and if we seize power, it would be acceptable to the West. And Kuma himself, of course, as you know, was overthrown in, um, in, in 1966 in Ghana. And then a series of so many other coups after that. So I traced it to that. We cannot look at it in isolation. After Congo, it became very easy. Uh, to pull off coups d'etat in African countries, especially when army commanders see that uh, we will be embraced by uh, these Western countries.
0: Yeah, definitely. goes back to that uh, history of uh, colonialism and national liberation struggles. And I'm also wondering how you situate Guinea in this moment, Milton, um, with uh, other countries in the region. I mean, uh, when we talk about what we've seen in countries like uh, Burkina Faso and uh, Chad and, you know, uh, other uh, other such uh, countries. I mean, uh, do you do you see sort of a, a similar thread that sort of uh, ties them all together in the way in terms of some of the broader regional developments on the continent?
2: Yes, and that's a very good question as well. Because what is going on is the young people, and you know, Africa's a very young continent. Yep. You know, the, perhaps the youngest in, in, uh, in, the, in, in the world. Um, uh, for in Uganda, for example, 80% of the population is under the age of 35. You know? So they have been agitating. There is a very anti-French sentiment that is very pervasive among uh, young people in West Africa, right now, so they are uh, pressing against the neo-colonial re- colonial relationship that most of these countries have had since their independence with France. The fact that the French uh, control their currency, the French control the major multinational businesses in those countries, control the utilities in those countries, and the other major uh, uh, companies like. Uh, telecommunications as well, even the postal service. Uh, So there's a lot of pushback right now because now young people can disseminate information very quickly on social media. So the state media, which used to control the narrative and the perception of the relationship of those countries with France, they are no longer the dominant forces of setting the narrative. The narrative is now being set on social media. Young people can uh, mobilize thousands of people for protests and demonstrations against French interests and against French neo-colonial puppets in African countries. So even uh, uh, leaders like uh, Dumbai and uh, the leaders in the, uh, that uh, were responsible for the coups in the Burkina Faso and uh, in Mali, they are now speaking uh, a pan-African agenda. Uh, Is it out of their own volition? I doubt it, but they are reading the signs on the streets and they're responding in the same vein. So there's a potential that whether they like it or not, they're actually ultimately going to end up in the right direction because the youth have had enough of not being able to determine their destiny. So in terms of uh, a pattern that's consistent amongst all those countries, that is what I can say. The youth uh, really uh, won't stand for it anymore. And Dumbaya knows that as well. So I think I don't see him wanting to stay there for like 10, 20 years. He may actually uh, uh, see the need to get out within the next year or two.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that the youthfulness uh, both of Guinea and the continent is definitely a big factor in the politics of uh, the continent in this moment, Milton. And I feel like we see that in the form of a lot of the different um, social movements that we see in uh, a different uh, parts of the continent as well. Also different uh, progressive and uh, left wing movements that we're seeing prop up. I mean, you've been talking about Ghana. I know that there's a move there to basically, you know, restore the real uh, history legacy of Nkrumah, which was kind of stigmatized following uh, his death, of course, uh, with no small amount of assistance from uh, uh, the CIA. And so, you know, uh, particularly when we look at the position of um, the African continent in global politics and how, you know, we see countries like the United States trying to you know, basically engage in competition with other countries that Washington sees as a threat, you know, namely Russia and uh, uh, China, as uh, right. seemingly those two countries uh, seem to want to have a kind of different dynamic with the continent. And so, I mean, it seems to me that as ever, and this is um, a narrative that I think is often obscured. It, it, it it's never been the case uh, that the African continent or African people sort of sat idly by while all of these development happens. They've always been um, uh, active participants in it. And that still seems to be a, a very strong factor when we talk about the role of youth and the role of social movements and, and sort of how, you know, uh, really uh, making those changes. You know what I mean?
2: I agree with you totally. And look at uh, look at South Africa, you know, look at Julius Malema. And the economic freedom fighters, and the other youthful leaders throughout the continent are also looking at what Julius Malema is saying, and they're listening because South Africa, of course, is the major economic power and the most industrialized uh, country in 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 in, uh, in Africa. And Malema is saying uh, he's talking the uh, language uh, of, of socialism. He's talking uh, the language of uh, of uh, taking the land without compensation because. The people that control the land never compensated anyone uh, for it. In fact, they commit, uh, they committed genocide to take over the land, as he consistently says. Um, and many people are not aware that uh, decades after the end of uh, a formal apartheid, economic apartheid still uh, remains. And that 10 percent of the population, which is uh, European South Africans, uh, control almost 80 percent of the land that is completely unconscionable, it is because Julius Malema has been talking and, uh, like that, that for the first time, the African National Congress, which of course has betrayed uh, the, uh, the calls for the Freedom Charter, um, uh, has now started talking about the need also for land redistribution in South Africa. And Julius Malema is talking about a borderless Africa and he's denouncing, you know, over the years, there have been some attacks uh, on Africans by South Africans, uh, Africans from other neighboring countries that go to work in South Africa. And Julius Malema has been condemning that as well, saying, how can you be attacking fellow Africans when, in fact, we should be working to eliminate all these borders and have a United States of Africa? So the spirit of Pan-Africanism and African unity is very much in resurgence. And we're seeing that in South Africa, we're seeing that in West Africa, and we're seeing that in East Africa as well.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Milton, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Hey, Sean. Glad to be back.
0: Absolutely. And we're glad to have you back, Nate. And Miami Dolphins quarterback, Tua uh had to be taken off the field on a stretcher recently during a game uh, the Dolphins were playing against the Cincinnati Bengals, suffering from another apparent uh, injuries to the neck and head less than a week uh, after being injured in another game. And so just sort of wondering what you're making of this uh, development. It seems like at uh, the getting a, a good bit of attention. And uh, what are the, the implications here?
3: Yeah, the implications are huge. I mean, we, we had the movie a few years ago, come out with Will Smith uh, playing the doctor, the film concussion. You had the, the 2015 settlement that the NFL made with retired players uh, for $900 million over you know, the, this concussion issue and CTE. CTE is something that actually can't be diagnosed except for post-mortem, but um, because you have to literally open up the brain and um, but yeah, you know, we've seen evidence of players that, you know, Junior Seif, Chargers linebacker, uh, Dave Dewarson, you know, you know, hard-hitting safety from the Bears in the 80s. So, you know, the public has basically been made aware of this issue. And, um, you know, there's always been these discussions about, you know, I mean, I remember when I was growing up, there were, you know, certain friends of my mom who, like, really were against me playing football and whatnot, and there are other people really encouraging it. So, and, and many other, you know, uh, people growing up have had the same the same sort of situation, and, and, and even questions about you know when is it okay to start playing football if it's okay at all. So it's something the public I think has an increased awareness about. So what they saw on Sunday against the Buffalo Bills um, was truly disturbing. I mean, you see Tua get thrown to the ground in Miami, a home game. Tua Tungavailo, that is the quarterback from who came from the University of Alabama and uh, was uh, drafted. Um, in, in, in the first round in 2020 by by the Dolphins. And and really, he gets up, he starts walking, and then just, like, starts to fall. He's holding his head, and then he, like, falls, like, almost like a, a drunk a, – you know, he was drunk or something, sort of was the look, you would think. And then it crops back up, and they – you know, he comes back out in the second half after missing only three plays. Um, you know, the, and then they, the Dolphins put out this statement that he has – basically it's a back, his back locked up on him. Well, he wasn't grabbing his back. Um, he was grabbing the head. Uh, the, when you see stumble like that, it, it's kind of the indicators are, I mean, we don't know exactly what happened in his assessment, but we also know that former Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver, Hines Ward, talked about, um, you know, the mindset to play football, to be able to be successful at that high a level and to, and to, be, and, and to keep making the life-changing money you make as a result. Um, you know, they would even – him so he would, and he said many other players would, would potentially sandbag and do poorly on their initial baseline concussion testing. So that, that that way, if you get if they're trying to assess you during a game, that you're even if you're messed up in the head, it's not going to show that it's that far that much lower than what your initial testing was prior to the season. And that gets into other things like about free will about choice, you know, you always hear the argument that, you know, it's a choice, no one's making you play. I mean, that, that literally is true, but there are, um, you know, many economic uh, pressures and, and cultural pressures that, that, that make that a lot more complicated than it might seem in terms of just a simple choice. So with Tua's situation, the reason this became so timely last night is that um, another controversial aspect of the NFL is these Thursday night football games where you're playing on three days rest. You play on Sunday, Get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, and you're playing again Thursday night, and that's what happened last night in Cincinnati. Um, he was thrown to the ground, and you know, in a, in a similar way, his head kind of you know snapped, kind of snapped back, hit hit right on the base of back of his head, and he was um, you know signaled for help and um, he was carted off the field. And this is – people were already saying that, that the NFL Players Union, NFL, which is the NFLPA, had already talked about um, having an investigation underway into what happened on Sunday. Um, and then to allow Tua to um, – you know, who clearly wanted to play himself, he's a quarterback, the leader of that team. Um, it's just another example of why you can't just take players' word for it in the moment because when you're young, vigorous, healthy, at the peak of your athletics, you know um, – crime you know that it's just it's you need to have independent people that are going to be maybe willing to tell tell guys that you know what they don't want to hear but is in their best long-term interest so let's not forget the ownership of this club under steven ross is uh you know already lost draft picks in the future been charged with tampering for meetings with tom brady while he was under contract with the with the, with the buccaneers um has uh you know, he did all, a lot of lot of fake sort of uh, social justice stuff, like, you know, at least rhetoric, um, you know, in 2020 post George Floyd. But the guy's been known for being a pretty vicious New York City real estate developer and uh, and uh, and making a lot of money off, off people, working class people in New York City um, before he uh, ended up owning the Miami Dolphins. And they have a history of lying and, and, and not telling the truth on on all sorts of issues and uh, so there's just a lot of unease and angst and it's uh, it's really transcended sports and really kind of re-sparking the discussions we've seen over the last decade um into the present now which have, i wouldn't say died down but just for so many other issues going on maybe not been as front and center
0: yeah, and, you know, what, what you're describing, um, Nate, because, I mean, this is obviously quite serious uh, in a number of ways, and it seems like even though uh, the league, the NFL, has these protocols or whatever as it pertains to concussion and head trauma, I mean, it feels like these teams uh, kind of uh, maybe, you know, fudge around the, these regulations a little bit in order to keep guys playing so that they can keep, you know, creating these uh, mega profits for these organizations. At least that's just my feeling. I mean, I'm not sure why else we continue to put people at risk like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, it gets back to the sort of contradiction where it's like, you know, you think, I mean, Tua is a very, you know, bright, bright young man. He has, has a lot of family support. His parents have been by his side. So, I mean, you, you obviously rationally don't think he'd be someone that would want to put himself at risk, but it just gets to the point where what does the, you know, the game of football, other combat sports too, part of you know, the appeal of them and part of what gets ingrained in you for fans, the appeal for fans, and then what gets ingrained in you as a young player coming up is like the ability to push through pain, play through pain, be a warrior, right? Those kind of motifs. Uh, we see pain as weakness leaving the body. So Tua, as a quarterback in particular, is going to feel this internalized pressure to, you know, try to convince himself that maybe what happened isn't really what happened, I think. So then it comes up, the onus falls on these team doctors, right? But the problem you're pointing out is correct, which is that these team doctors are just that, team doctors. Um, Thankfully, in 2020, with the new collective bargaining agreement, the, the Players Union now has the right to do independent investigations on these things about whether concussion protocol was followed. Um, And that investigation is underway and will probably take a few weeks to wrap up. They have to interview everybody involved, um, you know, including the, quote, independent neurologist that the NFL's brought in to ostensibly at least be separate from the team doctors. I'm not sure in practice if it always works out that way. But, uh, yeah, we're going to we're going to I'm really anxious to see what that investigation reveals in terms of the process of how um, everything went to be able to clear him because. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but you just watch what happened on Sunday in Miami, and it's just hard to imagine that um, it was, you know, probably wow. to his best interest to have him not just go back and play in that game, yeah. but then start this other game last night in Cincinnati yeah. against the Bengals. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot more to be seen, and I don't think your assessments off base.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, switching gears a little bit uh, from football to baseball, uh, Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees, uh, he hit his 61st home run of the season uh, uh, tying with Roger Maris. And uh, I'm wondering what you make of this. I mean, a lot of people have been discussing about, uh, you know, baseball stats and things like that from the time of the, you know, quote-unquote steroid era and things like that. I mean, what do you think this uh, judge – How do you think that sort of reflects on some broader issues that people have been discussing within baseball for a
3: while? Yeah, well, let me first just go back and just talk about baseball, like, and real quickly, um, you know, and it's golden age. Many people talked about that running through, like, maybe the 50s or early 1960s, an age where uh, Babe Ruth, Josh Gibson, if you bring in the Negro League, Satchel Paige, Negro Leagues, I, I don't want to, you know, slight like them at all because they were excluded until 1947 with Jackie Robinson and really a few years after that with many other teams. So you had, um, you know, you had an old-school, but a culture of baseball in this country that was built around community. So you think of a place like Brooklyn, where Ebbets Field was. The, the Dodgers left Brooklyn and moved to L.A. in 1958. Um, since then, the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn been you know it's it, another one of those neighborhoods is you know gentr- heavy gentrification underway. And the reason that's significant is that baseball was like a rock in a community for you know and, and it transcended race and ethnicity for so many kids because people lived in close proximity to each other you had generate communities that you know kind of sustained themselves from generation It was before this huge real estate speculation came in so you had baseball parks embedded in urban cities in neighborhoods not just built out in some suburb with a big parking lot around it owned by the owner and that was an era of guys like Jackie Robinson Mickey Mantle, you know, then Roger Maris, who you know, Aaron Judge tied the other night with 61 home runs in, in Toronto, um, who had the famous home run chase season to break Babe Ruth's record in 1961. So now skipping forward, you know, the game was so central in American life. I mean, the Negro Leagues were um, were huge, and uh, Major League Baseball was hu- you know obviously huge too. And, you know, a lot of people make the point now that saying – if, you know baseball is america's pastime and football is america's passion and that really has in a lot of ways kind of is borne out um i think it's interesting with Darren judge chase though as we step ahead and we also see that the trends of suburbanization that happened in the 70s the hollowing out of, of investment in urban cores um that the baseball's taken on a much more class um you know, it reflects the class realities of of those changes. Uh, Sure, we have a huge influx of Latin Latin American players. I mean, Venezuela has... You know, over ninety current MLB players, for instance, just to give one example, the Dominican Republic always you know, huge amounts. Well, we've seen huge Latino growth. We've seen a decline, a major decline in uh, the, in, in, in black participation, and, and part of that might just mean losing interest in the game a little bit. But it also has to do with some of those changes in the game. Being you know, you have to go out, you have to play really. Well, you have to be able to have money to go on all these travel teams and equipment and all that stuff, and. So Aaron Judge being mixed race and stuff and, uh, and and being from Fresno, California, I think it's it's good on that on that on that respect to see somebody who's um, maybe looks like other people, you know, looks like people who aren't just white, um, you know, uh, do what he did. But I also think it's important the steroid era and to talk about that, because. What that did too in the 1990s, you think of the 80s, 90s, and the, 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 um, the, the business boom. You hear you know, liberals affectionately look back on the Clinton years with nostalgia, and it was like everyone was trying to, everyone was happy getting ahead. They were coming off the MLB strike of 94, the 1998 Martin McGuire, Sammy Sosa home run race to break Roger Merritt's record brought baseball back into the forefront. And then in Barry Bonds, 2001, hitting 73, furthered that. But then Jose Canseco's book came out. Uh, We had more you know, bleak, drip, drip, drip information about how prominent steroid use was in baseball. And that led to eventually um, drug testing going into effect for performance-enhancing drugs. I think it's why many people see Aaron Judge's um, hitting of 61 home runs tying of, of roger maris and you know please speaking for myself i hope he hit 62 this last week of the season and breaks that many people still see that as the record including hank aaron before he passed away um who, who really you know never really you know showed you know bonds the respect barry bonds that is for for breaking his all-time home run record of 755 home runs so there's a lot of ways Aaron judge is sort of exercising baseball's demons of the steroid era. And you're seeing a lot of people kind of talk about that and it being thrust into the spotlight and becoming really kind of a cultural phenomenon now. And it'll be interesting to see because baseball, it's popularity is, has dipped a lot, but in a regional aspect, there's still huge parts of the country where baseball is huge. And um, so it's certainly not going away. And this chase, I think um, is allowing people to try to shed off the, uh, whatever the, the the hurt the guilt because they, they look at baseball as something pure it represents like even though we know it's a lot rooted in mythology this idea of you know america you know not being tainted it's like one of the the, the pure things i mean just just you know pitchers out there throwing the ball the hitter has the bat can they hit the ball it's a it's kind of a mono mono metaphor for i mean you could say capitalism even but it's it's not that simple i mean there's games and you know, competitive games and socialist societies just just as much as, as capitalist societies. But it's um and it's obviously beloved in Cuba and Venezuela. But it's um you know it, it's certainly uh, it's great for the game of baseball. And um you know we've talked a lot about the minor leagues and stuff and hopefully having the game catapulted back into kind of the, the national you know spotlight, especially with football season going on. Um, maybe we'll bring more attention to some of the issues that need need attention, such as the plight of minor league players and you know, all sorts of uh, issues within the game um, that are critical and uh, still, I think, are um, influential in American society.
0: For sure. And I also wanted to touch on this issue uh, and lead up to the the FIFA World Cup with the uh, Danish national team, the Danish national soccer team. It will reportedly wear what they're calling a monochromatic uh, kit, uh, their jerseys uh, basically, toning down their jerseys um, in tribute to migrant workers who died during the construction of uh, these facilities in this stadium in Qatar. And anyone who follows uh, FIFA, which of Course is always a hugely popular sort of international sporting event. Knows that there are always these issues with worker abuses, worker deaths, uh, displacement of communities, all you know, out of an attempt to you know, uh, generate the, the profits and, and uh, PR that come from doing this. And so, uh, tell us more, if you could, Nate, about uh, what Denmark has planned here.
3: Yeah, I mean, so they have got a black jersey supposedly, and uh, they they put it out on Instagram. You can check it out if you want. Just look up Danish team or uh, you know World Cup jersey, um, and or whatever Denmark. And yeah, we've talked about this a lot. I mean, Cutter basically was you know, got the World Cup awarded over a decade ago to them for twenty twenty two. It's usually always held in the summer. Now it's going to be disrupting all the professional league seasons, causing. Headaches for players involved and and many others. But the bigger issue is, yeah, the number of migrants that came from places like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Pakistan and other places. And and also countries in Africa, too, mainly East Africa, um, who who died building the stadium in Qatar. You know, a lot of times what happens is you go to work there. Out of desperation, needing to be able to send money back home, but there are no labor laws. There's no, like, if your boss takes your passport, decides not to pay you, well, just, you know, too bad, right? So some of those deaths are probably suicides too, but many of them are, are from unsafe conditions and the majority of them actually for sure. And, uh, I think it's just, it's, it's noteworthy that, that Denmark's making this stand. FIFA will probably try to, dissuade them from this, but I mean, it seems like with the, putting the money they have into the designs for these black jerseys, it represents the color of mourning. Um, they, as they, as they quote say, is a great way to uh, to put put the spotlight on Qatar and expose them for the, the charade this is. They, they got the world cup through massive corruption of the FIFA officials. And I'm not trying to say that other places that have gotten it before have done it all in the up and up, but the building of these stadiums in particular um has been highlighted in in in, in great detail by I mean, Brian Dumbles. HBO Real Sports did a whole special on it, you know, not two a year or two ago. It was just 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 uh, devastating really. So it's uh, uh hopefully Denmark won't be the only team that, that uses that 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 platform and stage coming up starting November twentieth to uh expose really FIFA and also the Qatari State's role and and uh deaths that that have been caused um, in order to put this spectacle on.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio and Watch D We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, September 30th, 2022. And of course, in twenty minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. That's not the only way you can get in touch with us here on the show. Because at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at two zero two five two one one three two zero. That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. Our is are standing by. You can also download our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can also uh, hit us up on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M Necessary. And just like every day, we are broadcasting live from Rumble on Rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M Necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And a couple of pieces at the top of the hour here. The administration of Joe Biden has announced new sanctions on Russia following the uh, successful referendum votes in four Ukrainian territories who voted to uh, basically integrate into Russia, which, you know, this sentiment is certainly not a new thing for people who have been paying attention to issues in the region, at least since 2014. But uh, be that as it may, uh, these sanctions reportedly will target government officials and their family members, uh, Russian and Belarusian military officials. And uh, what let me see here, what The Washington Post describes as, quote, defense procurement networks. Uh, The U.S. also said it wants to send a, quote, clear warning that uh, basically anybody, any person, any country, any entity that uh, provides what they call economic or political support to Russia, uh, you know, there will be a cost. There will be some issue to them. Uh, And this is coming from the Treasury, the Commerce and State Departments uh, saying that they want to impose, quote, swift and severe costs. On Russia. Now, I want to note that, you know, the U.S. and the NATO governments of Europe, these are the same countries that dropped uh, 23,000 bombs uh, and missile on Yugoslavia back in 1999 to force uh, the separation of Kosovo from Serbia and Yugoslavia. Of course, there's the bombing of Libya in 2011, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But yet, uh, you know, uh, these votes are somehow seen as a sham or as a violation of sovereignty and that's an allegation being leveled at people's, uh, you know, uh, from countries whose entire foreign policy is violating uh, uh, sovereignty. And also along with that, as a result of the referendums, uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky um, announced that he was applying for a fast-track membership to NATO and also has basically ruled out peace talks with Russian uh, uh, President Vladimir Putin. Uh, Zelensky has said, quote, clearly with this Russian president, that is impossible. Speaking of peace talks, he does not know what dignity and honesty are. Therefore, we are ready for a dialogue with Russia, but with another president of Russia. And uh, so this is, uh, I think, a a dangerous sort of development. I mean, things can change, but basically this is sort of a affirmation or an assertion, if you will, uh, you know, around a regime change and things like that in Russia, which we've already heard from the U.S. Also have to say it's kind of wild for, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky to talk about people not knowing what dignity and honesty are. I don't know what's dignified and, and honest about, you know, outlawing opposition parties and, you know, the sort of a uh, summary dismissals of officials uh, when they do things you don't like and all these sorts of things. But be that as it may, that's where things stand. Also today, the House passed a short term funding bill that will keep the government running until December, which uh, avoids a shutdown. Thing about it though, the the stopgap includes more than twelve billion dollars for aid to Ukraine. Yep, that's right, twelve more billion dollars going to this war. So all of these things deeply interconnected. But be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Christine Hendricks, president to the University School Board, Junior Bayard Rustin Fellow with the Fellowship for Reconciliation, and contributor to the Tooth. Truth-Telling Project and We Stay Woke podcast. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Hey,
4: yeah, Thanks for having me. Happy Friday.
0: Absolutely, and happy Friday to you as well, Christine. I, I hope uh, the weather is better up there in Missouri. It's kind of uh, gray and chilly and rainy uh, here in the D.C. as we move towards fall. But I wanted to begin today, speaking of sunshine, uh, in my home state of Florida, uh, uh, specifically around the issue of this reactionary racist governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, and how, you know, he chartered these two planes, as people know, that carried about 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. And um, of course, this is known as a uh, haven and a hangout for, you know, the, the wealthy and the, the well-connected here in the United States. But there very well may be some legal action coming as a result of this uh, for a, a number of reasons. I mean, namely the fact that these flights, these were private flights that were paid for out of funds that Congress made available for COVID-19 relief. Now, having been in Florida, it's a little difficult to see exactly where those funds went, but be that as it may, uh, it, it does appear as though uh, DeSantis may have uh, crossed some legal line here. And according to the reporting on ABC News, uh, the Florida state government worked with at least one third party vendor that uh, to help gather and move the migrants from uh, uh, Texas to Massachusetts and things like that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what your uh, uh, sort of thoughts are about this, uh, uh, Christine. I mean, it's outrageous on a number of levels and it's almost hard to know where to begin. But I mean, uh, how are you sort of viewing uh, this issue?
4: Yeah, definitely um, viewing it as outrageous. And, you know, the more information that I'm, you know, coming to learn and kind of hearing about the situation that's going on, the more outrageous it becomes. You know, first and foremost, uh, Ron DeSantis um, is in Florida, and Florida does not have a, you know, a huge problem with, you know, migrants crossing the border, because, of course, <laughs> Florida is the you know immigration problem um, is, or the, you know, problem that they see as immigration really important, which is why he has to go to Texas to traffic humans um, from Texas to New Hampshire. And so, you know, they thought that this was going to be a way to energize their base and to, you know, show how, you know, tough on immigration they are. In the meantime, it truly backfired because, you know, while you have the cruelty of, you know. Conservative uh, race um, up north, while you know we, the the argument can be made that those racism in in you know the the country um, those those liberals and the people but they were sending them to pride themselves on being the type of uh, patronizing people that would, would help folks. And so there was an outpouring of help for these people, including people who, of course, have resources and who are connected to, uh, you
0: know. Yeah, uh, K- Christine, sorry, but you're breaking up a little bit. But um, I-, I definitely get what you're saying. And you're, you're, you're correct, I think, to label this as human trafficking. That's precisely what it is. It's precisely what it is. And according to reporting, um, the people who got on these flights thought that, you know, they were going somewhere where they could, uh, you know, get some of the resources that they need, jobs, housing, you know, the reasons why people flee their uh, uh countries of origin to come to countries like the United States. You know what I mean? And so I think seeing it through that view, I think gives it a whole other sort of shade. And of course, um, um, uh, Desantis has not been alone in in this kind of activity. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has also uh, been, you know, uh, bussing migrants out of Texas to elsewhere. And, you know, uh, outside of Martha's Vineyard, as we've been discussing on the show, a lot of these migrants, uh, chiefly from Venezuela, overwhelmingly so, with, uh, uh, I think, a sprinkling of people from Colombia here and there, um, you know, they make this harrowing journey to cross the border, get into the United States only to be, you know, stuck on a bus or airplane and not even knowing where they're going. I mean, a lot of times people have their families with them as well. And as we've uh, talked about on the show, as people may have heard, um, a lot of times, you know, they end up, In in cities like, uh, let's say, New York, where there's there's already an incredibly overburdened uh, shelter system, and there may not even be people there who speak English, Uh, migrants may be afraid of conditions inside the shelter, so they may opt to actually sleep on the street instead uh, as a form of safety. Similar to in D.C., where we have in recent weeks seen um, the city government under Mayor Muriel Bowser um, make some more resources available. But for several months, it was just volunteer organizers from the immigration uh, justice movement who were really trying to help uh, uh, take care of people and things like that. And I think we got you back now, Christine, but just wanted to give you a chance to sort of finish up your thoughts there
4: we able to get to the north and it, it kind of just this game really just backfired on DeSantis and, and, and Republicans. And and also, you know, they were trying to do it as a as a way of saying that Biden was not doing anything. And my understanding is that uh, President Biden has a state sponsored program for the federal government where um, they are relocating. Migrants to other parts of the country, but with the knowledge that they'll be able to get in contact with, uh, you know, Homeland Security or, you know, any means that they need to in order to establish residency and, you know, to become a part of the fabric of the country. And so the scheme really backfired. And um, again, you know, just my main point was that it's human trafficking and that um, hopefully it will continue to bring awareness to the fact that. Uh, These humans do deserve sanctuary in the United States, and that's something that we all should be uh, fighting for and making sure that our government is doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, what gets me about this is that it's it's just so brazen. You know, th- this is a long way to go basically for a stunt. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. It's a stunt that is using human beings and their families, flesh and blood people and their families as uh, pawns. And in terms of you know, exciting their base. I'm sure it did, in fact, do that. But, you know, in terms of what may come back on them as a result, I think uh, uh, remains to be seen. And I think this sort of thing, uh, uh, Christine, is sort of emblematic of the political moment that we're in, where these, excuse me, these far right figures like DeSantis and uh, Abbott, and not only their base, but a lot of these, you know, far right organizations and militia groups that uh, tend to support them as well. You know, this these 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 Trumpists. Although, you know, I try not to make a too much of a distinction between you know the Trumpists and the mainstream Republicans. I mean, they're you know uh, more more in line than anything else. But even still, I mean, the the, the fact that's something that this brazenly and um transparently racist. Even uh, even happens, I think, just sort of shows where we are in this country. And this is happening along uh, around the same time as we're seeing what I consider to be like a right wing attack on a lot of our basic democratic rights. You know, voting and uh, abortion rights and I don't know, the access to clean water, all these sorts of things. You know what I mean? And so I feel like we should really be taking note of all these different developments, particularly as movement people. Because uh, since we see that those who are in power, really Democrats and Republicans, because our our stance here on the show is that with a lot of these issues, we see the attacks coming from Republicans and refusal to fight on the part of the Democrats, although they will still beg for our vote come November and in 2024. So it feels like we've reached a real crisis moment in politics. And personally, I have no faith in the mainstream of politics and this ruling class duopoly of Democrats and Republicans. I think that these problems can only really be solved by, you know, a militant, organized, grassroots effort by struggling people. You know what I mean?
4: Uh, definitely, I'm all for um, the grassroots struggle. Uh, and I also think that, you know, there there is some type of um, action through the court system, which I believe is, you know, could be happening, you know, with Ron DeSantis and the way that they're illegally. Really- human. And I think we need to continue to use all avenues of, um, of resistance, um, while we're, we're battling, whether it be political, whether it be the courts, whether it be, uh, you know, a militarized organized, uh, action for, for people in the streets, Um, and we also need to be ensuring that we're setting up and we have the, the networks for supporting each other. Um, because as, you know, times get harder, um, as we get more fascist, Policies and laws from those that are governing, and as inflation continues to arise, uh, you know we're really going to need to be able to support each other. And you know history has proven that you know those who survive you know times of you know turmoil uh, and destruction, you know with you know from you know parties in power um, are people who form um, authentic uh, communities. There's support and resources um, that uh, supersede uh, anything that could be uh, received from the government. And so I think we need to really focus on our our networks of support.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely dig what you're saying. I definitely dig what you're saying. And I do think that uh, the legal aspect of it and how it may play out in the courts, I think we should definitely be uh, 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 staying aware of uh, through this process as it pertains to DeSantis and, you know, the thing about it that I've been thinking about, Christine, is that although obviously what DeSantis and Abbott and the whole political element that supports them, although that is, as we've been saying, outrageous, I think in truth, it's, it's kind of an honest expression of a lot of the uh, ideology, if you will, of the United States in and of itself in terms of what this country thinks about itself, its history, and the reality of that beyond the lies that America tells itself and the rest of the world about itself. And so what I'm speaking to specifically is, of course, how, you know, white supremacy, racism is in the very fabric and DNA of this country. And one way that that was expressed is through um, how it has handled immigration. I mean, that has, you know, uh, immigrants have always been. Uh, a super exploited group here, uh, uh, in this country for quite some time now. And there are these, you know, anti-immigrant xenophobic policies that, you know, even go back a couple of centuries. I mean, if, you know, if we, uh, look at a lot of this legislation, we look at things like, uh, you know, the yellow peril that was aimed uh, specifically at Chinese immigrants and all these sorts of things. So this kind of racism and demonization and stigmatizing of immigrants that I would say throughout the years, frankly, um, Um, we've seen uh, come from both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Barack Obama, uh, who sort of portrayed himself as a progressive. I mean, our friends in the immigration justice movement called him the the deporter in chief. But um, and so it shows up differently. That's uh, that that looks a little different than, say, you know, Donald Trump just sort of wholesale painting uh, uh, immigrants as, you know, rapists and criminals and and all these sorts of things. But even still, uh, the result uh, seems to be the same. And so I feel like it just gets into a deeper question uh, about the very ideas that undergird the United States as we understand them and what we're seeing today in truth. These are not new developments. They're just a continuation of things that have been happening for a long time here in the U.S. I mean, does that make sense?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, with the human trafficking issues, it was a time when um, you know black people were being uh, trafficked from the south to the north because you know white people wanted them you know out of their neighborhoods or gone. So this is not actually this is something this is history uh, repeating itself. And if it's not repeating itself, it at least rhymes. And, and and so of course, you know, as a nation, we've always said that we're a nation uh, of immigrants, and you know, typically. When when people are having that conversation, they like to think of uh, of us as a nation of European immigrants, and and the right type of European immigrants, because not all European immigrants um, were were accepted equally in this country as well either. Uh, you know, and a lot of people were made white over time as uh, you know the white population needed to increase. So, you know, I really think that. Uh, when we when we talk about immigration and about, you know, the, uh, allowing people to to come into this country, it's really, you know, wanting more Europeans to come to this country. And that's that's what people are talking about. However, the conditions in this country are so um, horrible. You know, with our health care system and, you know, and other government the policies that we have, that it doesn't make for sense for many Europeans um, to, to migrate to the United States because they would be losing uh, benefits and that social safety net in so many ways. And so that opens up our borders to the rest of the world, which... We put that, that, you know, the rest of the world in the position where um, they need to to migrate to the United States, whether it's been because of our endless war policies or whether it's because of, uh, you know, capitalism and the destruction of the environment. And so global warming is causing people to have to migrate because uh, their land is now inhabitable, you know, and um, you you would think our country would be welcoming considering that, you know, we have such labor shortages. However, And as you mentioned, the the xenophobia uh, of many of the people that that inhabit this country. And that does not just, you know, that's not just white people. A lot of times it's other native-born people and sometimes people of color who don't want immigrants to come because of the propaganda um, that has been used to um, disrespect and disregard the the actual benefit that we get from having people migrate from all over the world. And so, you know, we have to, you know, really examine ourselves as a nation and and lead these people here. Um, Many times they're they're going to be the best and the brightest and contribute the most and, uh, you know, not listen to the propaganda that comes from many of our elected leaders, whether they're Democrats or Republicans.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch TDC, We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
5: By any means necessary.
0: Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquemann. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I continue to be joined by Christine Hendricks, and we've got a couple of callers on the line here. First up is Tarif. Tell us what's on your mind.
6: Thank y'all for taking my call. I have three comments. Um, I apologize to y'all. Produced, I forgot to mention this street, uh, this doctor name, Ph. Her name is Joy James. She deal with um. I just tuned on to y'all show. I don't know if y'all had her on a show before, but she wrote a book on uh, the Black Bourgeois. Uh, neoliberalism, How these, these so-called black, you know, elite celebrities just make all this money and then they leave the rest of the black community alone, and they go along with the system, not uh, li- not helping out the people by putting money back in the community with trade schools and things of that na- nature. And my other, my second comment is dealing with um, <clears throat> trade schools. We need more trade schools to teach the youth how to do carpentry car mechanics things of that nature in a tradesman I see in the united states if the the black uh, black people I'm talking about is doing with africa because Africa i see is the opportunity to open up trade schools there carpentry car, auto mechanics machines um nursing school medical field um uh you know things of that nature and my last comments is dealing with um they had a colonel from every once in a while. You're, you know, European. You know, Europeans telling them themselves, right? They had a colonel came out say that they had rumors circulating by Zelensky. He wanted to um, bring a team of scientists together to create a, a dirty nuclear bomb with the spent rods and the nuclear power plants that they have to try to back the Russians off. That's dangerous, and also the North Korean two pipeline was biting. Was behind that. He gave the um, go ahead on on that um, situation. Then by this time, about excuse me, next next year when he will probably take over, which I think they will, you might see an impeachment of him. They might get him out of office by impeaching him because somebody's gonna blow the whistle, and Biden will be getting trouble. Thank you all for taking my call.
0: Well, thank you, Tariq Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, next up is Wesley. Tell us what's on your mind.
4: Uh, yeah, uh, I just wanted to say about the whole immigration issue. You know, it's more of a statement than a question at all. But, you know, if they want to stop the influx of people coming here, maybe don't sanction nations like Venezuela to where they're blocking important medicine and just trying to disrupt their economy any way they can. If you want to stop the inflow of immigration, leave these countries alone and let them be. Because if there's one thing the U.S., we all know, loves to do is meddle in foreign affairs, it's like going to someone else's house setting it on fire and then when they try to stay at your house since you burnt down the house they're like oh no 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 that's not our problem we only set your house on fire now you got to deal with it but uh once again thank you for taking my call awesome show as always
0: well, thank you, Wesley. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. And I mean, yeah, and, and this is a point that we raise all the time on by any means necessary, precisely because it, it isn't even entertained um, in the mainstream corporate media. Certainly don't hear it from uh, the halls of power from the uh, elected officials. But it's true that U.S. imperialism itself is a great driver of uh, immigration uh, around the world is the only one, but it certainly is a major contributing factor precisely because of these issues of regime change and sanctions and all these sorts of things. I mean, violation of human rights, violation of sovereignty, violation of anything that can be called democracy, all the things that Washington claims to uphold, it violates on a constant basis. Because that's what is necessary for U.S. imperialism to maintain its hegemonic control over the earth. Uh, But uh, uh, Christine, curious your thoughts on this.
4: Yeah and I think that that's um you know kind of what I was alluding to um before um the gentleman made uh, his comment was definitely that you know our policies um really impact the you know our our immigration and I believe that you know the um I I, I truly believe that um you know our, our politicians do know um exactly what they're doing It is. And then still um, continue to, you know, continue the same harmful policies um, while also, you know, telling us that, you know, immigration is, you know, a they problem and not a we problem. And so I think um, his analogy and comment was spot on.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, another thing that I want to speak to, because you also mentioned, Christine, um, the 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 narratives that people in the United States are are fed about. Immigrants and uh, immigration and how that is a direct really the central factor in what drives anti-immigrant xenophobia in the United States was, of course, is just an outgrowth of racism itself and imperialism, as we've been discussing. And as we know, since capitalism and white supremacy are inextricably linked and imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, well, then obviously this is basically what white supremacy on a global scale looks like. You know what I mean? And I wanted to raise this because there are even elements of uh, black America. I mean, namely, I'm talking about these reactionary tendencies of ADOS and FBA who, you know, their uh, ideologies around immigrants is indistinguishable from any white racist or a right winger that you could name. But all of that is built upon this false assumption that somehow the presence of immigrants is taking something away from Americans or taking something away from black people specifically, I suppose, uh, depending on what uh, side of the reactionary coin someone is uh, coming at it from. But this is fake, this is a manufactured problem precisely because Uh, oftentimes immigrants are being exploited because they're able to be paid a lower wage because their entire situation is just far more precarious. And a lot of times people don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to risk um, uh, bringing the attention of of immigration officials. And we know for a fact that there are some uh, bosses that will call immigration on uh, uh, their own uh, uh, migrant workers and, and things like that. And so it's sort of this constant threat that's sort of, Uh, uh, often hanging over them. But my real point is, is that the enemy, the thing that is impacting us all is the capitalist system itself. There is not like this limited pot of resources or money that, you know, everybody can only get a little bit of. This is the wealthiest nation on earth. So there's more than enough to satisfy everyone's needs and to uh, uh, pay everyone a living wage. And so the issue is not of an immigrant taking something from you, it's the fact of this capitalist, racist system and country that is stealing from all of us. And so we have to have an understanding about the actual operations of this system and not fall into the trick bag of this same old divide and conquer garbage that uh, uh, has been perpetrated upon the American people for so long. So if this is the sort of thing you you believe, you're not fighting for reparations, you're certainly not fighting for uh, uh, black liberation, um, basically all you're doing is uh, uh, pushing the same old uh, uh, tired sort of line, just uh, maybe dipped in black. But I wanted to move on here, Christine, to uh, touch on this issue with uh, Jenny Thomas, of course, Virginia Thomas, whom I'm speaking of, the um, uh, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and her role uh, uh, in the January 6th attack. So, I mean, the investigation into this, I believe, is ongoing. And so what's the latest with that, Christine.
4: Yeah. So basically, you know, the January 6th um, committee hearings, of course, were uh, postponed due to the hurricanes happening in Florida. So definitely keeping um, Floridians in our in our thoughts. But, you know, Jenny Thomas, who is the wife of Supreme Court Justice and race traitor Clarence Thomas, has been very active um, with, you know, the January 6th. Uh, riots to the point where you know she was um, having texting communications with Mark Meadows. Uh, she's you know and having communication um, with others, she still to this day, um, or at least as of the most current reporting, still believes uh, that Trump was the rightful winner of uh, the 2020 election and that it was stolen from him. And so, you know, just really kind of watching this unfold and, you know, knowing that while she denies, um, I don't believe her, but she denies that she has never had any conversation with her Supreme Court husband about any of her uh, role within uh, you know her support for Trump and/or January uh, six leading up to the riot, but it's it's just unbelievable. I mean, how many spouses um, you know really don't have any type of conversation around you know what is their their life's work? And so you know just really watching that unfold and just kind of seeing the the privilege that's bestowed upon people who have you know the political power, because you know if the rest of us were just deeply involved and you know just like seeing some of the other people who were deeply involved uh with January 6th whose you know documents have already been pulled, they've already been indicted, um they're already in serious trouble and, and you know while uh Clarence uh, Thomas is still allowed to maintain uh you know his seat on the, the bench and oversee um issues pertaining to January and and it just shows the breakdown of the system or that the system works the way that it was intended to, which is for the wealthy and well connected.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I feel like January 6th is something that will likely continue to uh, have an impact on the politics here in the U.S., certainly for the coming period. uh, You know what I mean? As this whole this whole idea, you know, what what what's been termed the big lie, this notion that Donald Trump actually won uh, the, the 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 26th. Uh, the the last, the 20, excuse me, the 2020 elections. So it's hard to even know which way is up anymore. But uh, that somehow Donald Trump actually won the 2020 elections and that some kind of way, you know, Joe Biden stole it. And that is supposedly what justified this uh, uh, attack, this physical attack on the Capitol, something that uh, has not been seen uh, on U.S. soil for some time in that way. And that, of course, is kind of the driving narrative around the whole Trumpist wing of uh, uh, politics in the U.S., if we want to call it that. So uh, I'm just sort of wondering, uh, Christine, how do you see uh, sort of the the shadow or the specter of January 6th, if you will, in all that it represents, sort of reflecting on how we see politics unfolding here in the U.S., uh, particularly as at this point, we're just about a month away from uh, midterms
4: definitely so I think that, we can call it the the Trump playbook even though it was um, around before him I think that he utilized it the the most effective uh, which to want you know doing it which is to um, you know the legitimacy of the election, so they have you know people, especially their supporters, who are already believing that if they don't have their decisive wins, then the election was stolen or fraudulent. Um, so I believe that that will you know continue. Um, I also believe that you know within our political system, and I believe it will happen on the right um, that they will continue to try to rule uh, through the minority. Solely believe in. Uh, they totally believe in um, minority rule, and will continue to try to uh, impose uh, their ideology upon the rest of us, even though they do not have the majority. And so, you know, I think that unless Democrats really start to, you know, change their message, you know, almost in some respects, uh, and I, I, I believe I'm, I'm seeing it in my own state of Missouri with someone who's running but I do kind of enjoy that she's kind of running. In, in a sense, in the way that Republicans run. You know, they're running on things like freedom. Uh, they're running on uh, Republican ideas, you know, burning and things like that, because those are, that's how, you know, they're going to touch um, that base. So I think, you know, Democrats have to have a, you know, a stronger playbook. Um, if they want to defeat Republicans, um, they need to be stronger because, you know, a lot of people are looking for that strong and, ideology, which is how Trump got into office. So I think that, you know, progressive organizers and people who actually care about, um, you know, Liberation and and having a decent society really need to be watchful um, and need to be organizing around the election and really getting people out and saying, hey, um, you know, we know the system is not great, but it it, it would be best to fight for our liberation uh, with, you know, cleaner water and better policies and um, to be fighting under a fascist uh, oppressive regime.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I agree um, when you talk about how, you know, the Democrats really. It, frankly they they have to come with a uh a kind of real uh sort of popular program that speaks to people's needs, I'm not necessarily confident that they will do that, looking at how, you know, what happened with the Build Back Better plan and how that was scuttled by, you know, the so-called moderates within the party who, as I always note, they're they're not moderate, they're just straight-up right-wingers, you know what I mean? And so, you know, even looking at um, the attacks on, like, uh, Rashida Tlaib, um, who correctly pointed out that uh, Israel is an apartheid state. And, you know, we've saw when we talk about like uh, censorship of alternative voices in the media, I mean, we saw, you know, journalists like Katie Halper, who talked about this very thing or attempted to on uh, the Hill, but uh, was subsequently let go as a result. And she ended up recording um, the, the monologue she was going to do for Breakthrough News, if people want to check that out. But I mean, it just shows that, you know, uh, it, it just often feels like the space that progressives have within the mainstream political world in the U.S. is just so narrow and and small and constrained, even by the mainstream of the Democratic Party, which, you know, as ever, I think, shows why we have to have a a movement and an effort that operates independent of the political mainstream if we want to actually see a change. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By any means necessary.
0: Welcome back. So by any means necessary, join Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 2. 025211320. I am here. Christine Hendricks is here as we continue. And you know, uh, Christine, I feel like one of the uh, uh, sort of characteristics of our time, if you will, I think, is the uh, how should I put it? We, we're watching a decline in people's faith. In the institutions of the United States, right? And the reason why I was thinking about this is a recent poll that was published recently by Monmouth University, I believe it was published today, that uh, talks about how a majority of Americans that were surveyed believes that the Supreme Court is, quote, out of touch. And uh, according to respondents to the survey, it was about uh, 60% of uh, Americans saying that the Supreme court is out of touch with uh, the quote values of belief of the public. And, you know, that's no big shock. I mean, considering recent developments such as the overturning of Roe v. Wade, what appears to be a clear encroaching attack on, uh, you know, uh, voting rights and other basic um, democratic Rights here in the United States, and it almost feels like we're living through the logical conclusion of so much of what's been happening in this country um, for so long. I mean, here you have the Supreme Court, an unelected body of people who, at least in my opinion, are basically in in place as a kind of last line of defense of uh, the capitalist system in this country and its class. And I think it's actually been that way pretty much uh, from the beginning. But the reason I raise this, Christine, is because I think this is a part of what shows Um, What contributes to the political crisis that we're living through right now in the United States? And I feel like, you know, people aren't really calling it that, but I feel like we are in a crisis moment in a number of ways. And all of these different institutions and positions and leaders that we're all taught to have so much respect and regard for have shown that they're not terribly interested in actually putting forth things that are of benefit to poor working and oppressed people. And I would argue that the Supreme Court, whatever um, decisions they may have made that we could describe as basically being good, I would argue more or less come as the result of pressure from below and the result of uh, uh, social movements. And so I think that directs, excuse me, I think that connects directly to what you were saying earlier about, you know, developing our networks and, and things like that because, I think when these institutions, when they show us that they're not worthy of our uh, uh, faith, if you will, or support, that we really do have to put that kind of uh, support in each other to really, uh, uh, fight for these things into each other, into organizations, into movements across lines of division, across this country, and indeed, uh, uh, around the world. And it seems to me that in a way, people may be slowly coming to the realization that actually it is people power that, that makes all the difference. And I think as organizers, we should sort of seize upon that moment, seeing it happen to really help to, uh, uh, develop this movement because what I think tends to happen if people have these realizations and they're coming into this consciousness absent a kind of movement effort, then I think they tend to fall into despair because a lot of times they think, well, you know, well, there's nothing that can be done if the government itself sort of refuses to. It seems like no matter who we try to vote for or no matter what we try to support, that nothing really happens. But I think if we stress the importance of a collective effort, then this is what I think can really help to um, not only bring more people in, but to help people understand that ultimately it is us, you know writ large, who keeps us safe and who will protect us and fight for us and not those who necessarily who have you know uh, uh, are in these elected uh, offices.
4: Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, you know you talked about despair, and I truly believe that it's easy to you know for people to fall into despair, and you know to kind of be fledgling out here trying to figure out you know how do we change society and how we do change the system. Because when I really to think about it, you know, there's no will, whether it's from our political leaders or um, you know from you know just mainstream society, to just kind of reform just. You know, basic reform. Some of these, you know, ancient institutions. You know, like the like the Supreme Court, like Congress, like the Senate. The Senate is an unfair institution. Um, it gives more power to you know smaller states than is necessary. That to you know person gives more power to um, a Wyoming when you know California has you know three and four times the population. And so, you know, when I really think about it, you know, there has to be a lot of you know. When there's no will amongst the people to even want to reform a system because we've been so programmed into believing. So we are perfecting this union, um, or that it, it is at least good. Uh, you know, that that, that can be um, very disheartening. But I think that with, you know, proper, you know, political education, with, you know, infinite shows like these who are out here speaking truth to power, who are trying to educate the masses, I think, you know, that is a, a great start. I always try to, you know, push people towards programming like this because you're not going to get the same type of analysis here or, that you're going to get on mainstream media, which is always going to, um, even if it's going to be disagreeable be disagreeable up to a line and so we need people who are you know courageous enough to cross those lines and to really speak to the people and you know continue telling them that yes it is it is us and it's going to be people powered and uh we do we can have the the resources and the power uh to make the changes that we need necessary we just need to uh you know begin implementing that and to continue educating ourselves on the best way forward
0: definitely we've got another caller on the line here brave tell us what's on your mind
5: okay peace um uh, all the respect to your to your uh, guest um a point was made about um in the last segment before the break a point was made about fighting under uh fighting under a uh, fascist rule uh versus i guess the the left I'm, I'm i'm paraphrasing i'm not paraphrasing very well but um the distinction was made between um i guess fighting under a um Uh, A leadership that is, um, I guess, more conducive to what what I would assume would be uh, our position versus the fascist, which is what I would assume um, uh, would be the the Republican or the the right. I'm concerned by that because uh, I've been. Fought, I'm on 45 years old. I've been following politics since I was about 15. I got really heavy into politics when I went, went into the army around my 20s. Um, from that time to now, I haven't seen much different in the arguments that are being made um, and the issues that are being um, fought over. Uh, and it seems like there. And this is not an attack against the guest because this is something uh, as an aside. Um, I, I don't see much difference in the conversations. Other than the fact that um, it seems like um, the people on the left, who I once identified with, um, seem less um, willing to be engaging with other with people of other opinions, and when I consider um, when I consider the idea of, of fascism, this stuff is this stuff is really getting ramped up right now under the left, under the under the Democrats, and I, and I don't mean uh, ground. I'm not mean at the ground level. I mean. Uh, concerning the, the elite rulers in Washington, right? This is where we're seeing fascism truly ushered in. And I feel like it's getting a pass just because it's under a, to a certain extent, it's getting a pass just because it's under a blue flag. Um, that I don't understand why Black people a minority, have to be tied to anyways. I, I don't see why Black people would vote for Democrats or Republicans in any case. I, I don't understand that at all. But I especially don't understand why Black people would continue to fight for or speak out for or speak on the behalf of a Democratic party that's been so utterly disrespectful to us, one, and been so um, complicit in our downfall, two, and three, and most finally, that has been ushering in, um, what I do believe to be fascism. I think most people would agree, right? You can't have a conversation online. They're tracking you everywhere you go. You can't communicate through social media at all. These things are real, right? Um, I just, I'm on a job. I'm working for a company now um, as a contract designer, and I had to take um, diversity training and I had to take training on HIPAA just to work with the company. And they brought up HIPAA, but at the same time, they forced me to get a shot for, for, for COVID in a time where we know that the vaccine doesn't affect or protect you at all. Right. But they still forced me. I, I never felt so violated in my life, but I'm black. I grew up in the hood, man. I, I dealt with a lot of violation. Right. So this is all happening under Democrats. And I think that, I think that our people need to be more concerned with that and less concerned with the, uh, the whole voting for the blue or not voting for the monsters on the, in the red. So we can see clearly who our enemies really are and that they are both parties because they are an elite, group that seemed to rule with no concern about colors other than green. i leave it at that.
0: Well, thanks a lot, Bray. Appreciate you calling and hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I disagree with uh, what you're saying about uh, vaccines, I don't think it's accurate to say that they're uh, ineffective. Certainly, we can critique uh, the way it was rolled out here in the U.S. as we have consistently here on the show. I mean, speaking personally, I think, you know, vaccines are objectively a good thing, and I would encourage people to get them. Uh, secondly, I wanted to speak to what you are saying about, you know, like you don't understand why uh, black people uh, vote for or support either of the two major parties. You know, uh, you all hear me say often here on the show, I quote Karl Marx in talking about how um uh you know the 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 dominant ideas of any society is that of its ruling class and so sort of coming from that uh you know the reason why black folks engage the political electoral system as it is is the same reason that you know everybody else does that this is what is presented to us as the two choices and what gives them legitimacy what gives the democrats and republicans the legitimacy to say you can only vote for us and nothing else outside of that should even be considered uh why is it that uh you know the mainstream electoral field uh is designed in such a way to completely keep any alternative and progressive a uh, uh, platform or person or program from coming to the fore. It's about the protection of ruling class interests. That is what it is about at the end of the day. And so every two and four years, we're put in a position where we have to choose you know who's going to you know lord over us and and you know exploit us and ignore our uh issues for whatever the 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 term period is. And so when we talk about sort of a black people's involvement in that I mean it's a, a direct result I think of our experience in this country in in a number of ways. And certainly we can critique it but I think the solution um, is we have to be actively trying to organize in our communities and amongst our people, um, around these problems. And to be frank, cause I have a lot of the same, um, uh, criticisms of the Democrats that, that, that you do, but personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, I definitely would not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I would not admonish people for engaging the electoral process as it is because, again, this has what has been presented to us as the, uh, you know, the legitimate way of sort of conducting things. And so I feel like as organizers, we have to understand that as being real and then find ways to carry through our work with that as a uh, uh, as a factor. I don't think it's something that we should avoid and, and, and nor do I think that that necessarily translates to. Uh, support for the Democrats. But um, Christine, I think, you know, uh, the question was basically directed at some of your comments. So I want to give you a chance to respond.
4: Yeah, um and, and like you, Sean, I don't um necessarily disagree with um a lot of, you know, what the, the caller said as far as, you know, the, the Democrats and Republicans. I do disagree around, you know, vaccines, um and agree more with what, you know, you said as someone who um reluctantly did get vaccinated, but I'm glad that I did. Um, as far as mostly supporting um, Democrats. Typically, when I'm supporting Democrats, typically I'm supporting um, more progressive Democrats uh, like a Cory Bush, like a Bernie Sanders, um, like a Ilhan Omar and, you know, AOC. Um, so, you know, that's for... So their, their, their policies are, are are going to be more in line with, you know, where I'm at and some of the radical ideas that I have, um, and especially around, like, environment and those types of things. And while I don't believe that the Democrats um, are always very very effective. And I don't believe that they fight hard enough for us. I think that that as a society, we have better results with Democrats um, when we're fighting for some of those environmental issues. And this isn't entirely, you know, my, um, my idea. Um, you, you can, um, research the yellow can and he goes into it a lot more in depth than even I do, but basically the long and the short of it is, is that, um, you know, we can get some of the policy objectives that we want to have clean air. Like, I don't want to fight fascism while I'm also trying to, you know, breathe. I don't want to fight fascism if I don't have access to, let's say, um, you know— you know uh, you know the hospital and, and, and medicine I don't want to fight against these things um, when the police are becoming more and more oppressive and given more and more you know military equipment so um, one finding those Democrats who are more progressive and voting for them and when we have a choice of someone who is more conservative applying the pressure needed um, and making sure that they're challenged by a progressive Democrat come primary time so that they're more likely to fall in line with the values that we hold as a society while we're fighting against both parties because like you said they are both our enemies it is the elite ruling class um that is our enemy and that and that ultimately is what we're trying to um, liberate ourselves from
0: yeah and you know as ever I, I look at these things you know what I'm saying from a uh from a a class standpoint and that's that's what I was um, you know getting at a little earlier um in my uh, uh other comments and so uh, uh this is what I think sort of brings a real level of clarity to a lot of the issues that our that are facing us right now, although you know the class element of things is often sort of uh, played down until it's (laughs) frankly needed to uh, use opportunistically by uh, many in the mainstream. But I mean, uh, uh, even still, and I would even be careful when we when we have this, uh, you know, when we hear this narrative of like, well, you know, people on the left need to be open to different opinions. You know, I just think we should be clear that we shouldn't have any space for reactionaries or reactionary ideas. And um, I think uh, beyond that, though, it is generally true that we have to be able to speak in a language uh, uh, in a popular way. You know, this 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 is a term you might hear people use in a popular way, meaning in a way that uh, makes it plain, like like Malcolm X would uh, often uh, talk about, because the propaganda in the United States uh, is profound. And it's incessant. It's unceasing. And uh, we know that that's true because even people who are nominally otherwise, you know, progressive or or left wing thinking people can be impacted by it. I mean, we see that all the time, particularly with uh, uh, international issues. And so as such, I think that uh, we definitely have to have a level of patience when doing this work. And we also have to have optimism with that. Right, to show that there is a reason to be optimistic. And like you say, Christine, um, I agree that if we <laughs> look at what uh, 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 mainstream politics is doing, then it can be easy to fall into despair. But I think if we help people understand that there is, in fact, hope and that there is a solution, but that that solution lies with us. I think can go a long way to uh, uh, moving things in a different direction. So personally, I have a lot of hope uh, for the future. I have a lot of faith in people in general, and certainly I have a lot of faith in our class, but all the faith in the world isn't going to actually uh, carry through all these different things that we know needs to happen, that is not what is going to really achieve change. It is going to take our active involvement and engagement in our communities and amongst our class. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week. Here on, By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spuddy Can Watch, D.C. One thing, Christine Hendricks, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
1: By Any Means Necessary.